Welcome to Ebenezer Baptist Church on November 17, 2013. Today's message is titled, The Wisdom of Creation, by Dr. Jonathan Wilson, and is based on scripture, Proverbs, chapter 3, verses 1 to 26. It's a delight for me to be here with you this morning. I bring you greetings from Cary Theological College and Canadian Baptists of Western Canada. Uh, we're sister denominations, brother denominations, some, something like that. We're family. Uh, and it's a delight to be here with you. My association with this congregation actually goes back to the time when I was a student at Regent College and Art Patsia was your pastor and occasionally teaching courses at Regent. And then later on, when I went on and did my doctorate and then became a professor on the faculty of Westmont College, I taught both Carol and Steve Pazia there. Uh, in addition, I have gotten to know uh, Ryan Cochran since I moved back here in 2006 and joined the faculty at Cary. Ryan and I just sort of bumped into each other at Regent and hit it off and began to meet occasionally. I like to come over here and meet with him and go off for good Indian food for lunch. And so it's a delight now uh, to have this invitation to be here with you. And Rhea and I know each other from our association on the west side. I'm a member at West Point Gray Baptist Church uh, where she previously worshipped and belonged and it's a delight to see her again here and know that she's found a, a family here among you. I'm also very much appreciative of the worship that we've entered into. I am struck by the thoughtfulness of uh, those who put together the worship service and of the prayer. Uh, Kevin, right? I, Isaac, I'm so sorry. How do, uh, yes. Okay. Uh, uh, and, and the prayer and, and the, the clear sense that they had my sermon title and the passage of scripture and put that together for our worship this morning. And so uh, in some ways what I'm going to say for the rest of this time is kind of redundant. Uh, I hope that you recognize how God is teaching us through the, the songs that we've sung, through the prayers that we've prayed, and now through the scripture that has been read and what I will say out of my uh, reflections on that scripture. Uh, two Sundays ago, I was in Kamloops preaching and uh, Southwest Community Church there, and I passed on my sermon title, my scripture passage, and just a brief description of the sermon. And again, I was amazed at how uh, the Spirit of God just weaves things together uh, for us to learn, for us to grow deeper in God's word and in the life that God has called us to. Let's pray for just a moment before we begin to hear, continue to hear God's word. God, we thank you that you have already opened our hearts, our ears, our minds to know your presence today, to learn from one another to learn from your people over the ages who have written hymns, songs, who have prayed prayers. And now we pray that we would continue to hear, that you would touch my lips and 
the words that I have prepared to speak would be words that you have given to us. May our hearts receive them and judge them and weigh them by the presence of your Spirit among us. And may they be life to us that move our hands, our feet in action this week in a world that needs to know your love and the hope of the resurrection. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. When I was 21, living in Nashville, Tennessee, I decided that life was meaningless. It was empty. It had no purpose to it. It's an interesting story how I got to that point, but we don't really have time for that story this morning. I had calculated, well, I was 20 years old, just about to turn 21, and chances are I might live until I was 70, and so I was calculating that I had 50 years of meaningless existence to get through. How was I going to cope with that? I had dabbled a bit in alcohol and drugs and discovered that wasn't any help for me. I had grown up in the church and I, for a variety of reasons I'm not going into, had found the church uh, meaningless as well. I'll, I'll say one word about that. I was growing up in the American South. Uh, when I was 10 years old, my eyes were just blasted open uh, to the segregation, the racism, the prejudice of the part of the church that I was growing up in. And I just pulled inwardly away from all of that, though I continued to conform outwardly. My father was a pastor and denominational executive, and I didn't want to cause him trouble. Uh, it turned out that was my sister's job. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, I, I was conforming outwardly, rebelling inwardly. I had tried the church, I had tried the world, and I discovered emptiness everywhere. So I decided, well, the only way to get through the next 50 years is to distract myself. So I did adventurous, dangerous things, and the adrenaline rush helped me for a while, and then, of course, it's gone, and you're back to meaninglessness and emptiness. And then one day, I was working a night shift, so that I could play during the day. I didn't need sleep in those days. And one day I realized I had never really tried God and Christ for myself. I had lived off of other people's faith. So, being the humble 21-year-old that I was, I decided I would give God a week to make all of that a reality to me. And so each night before I went to work, I would read a passage of Scripture. Monday night, I read the Gospel of Matthew. It was so familiar to me, having grown up in the church, having performed in Christmas plays and other things. Uh, it was just all familiar to me. And it, it just, I thought, well, that's what I've already tried. It makes no sense. It, it doesn't help. Tuesday night, Mark, no help. Wednesday night, getting desperate, hoping, wanting something to be true and meaningful in my life. I flipped through uh, a Bible that I had, one of those green padded covered living Bibles. Many of you remember those. I still have it. 
uh, flipped through it, and I got to the back of the book, and I thought, you know, I saw Job in there. I know the story, but I've never really read it for myself. And so I turned back to Job and began reading. And I got into those first three, four, five, six, seven, up to the 12th chapter, and I was tied into a knot. Job and his friends are dealing with amazingly difficult problems of life. They were the very problems that I was dealing with. They were angry with God as I was angry with God. Everything was confusing. It made no sense. Just the way everything was confusing and senseless to me. I thought, this is in the Bible? I had no idea. I didn't think I could ask the kinds of questions that were stirring up my heart and troubling me. I didn't think I could ask those questions in the church. And here they are in the Bible. By the 12th chapter, I was so wound up, I had to find out how the story ended. So I turned to the back of the book, and I found chapter 38 in Job, where God answers Job out of the whirlwind. And God's answers to Job and God's continual challenging to Job blasted through all the doors, all of the anger, all of the confusion, all of the senselessness of my life. And God, the creator, God, the redeemer, just swept me up once again and reclaimed my life for him. Job the means of my renewal, of God's reclaiming of my life. Now, when I was preparing this sermon this week, I planned immediately after this to move into the sermon text. We're going to get there in a minute. But as we've worshipped together and as we've thought a little bit about the Philippines, I want to, to just insert another sermon in here, a short one, for just a couple of minutes because wisdom has been something of a, a special study of mine in the Old Testament. You know, we talk about the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Uh, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, some of the Psalms, like Psalm 37, Psalm 73. Some of the stories of the Old Testament are really shaped by wisdom themes, like Joseph and Esther uh, and Daniel. And one of the things that I have come to realize reading the book of Job and reflecting on it and pondering it is that we often come to Job with the wrong questions. The book of Job does not answer the problem of evil in any straightforward way. Well, here's the answer. Rather, the book of Job teaches us the limits of our wisdom and understanding. Job's friends who counsel him and speak wrongly to him and, and don't provide any comfort for him are actually repeating good wisdom teaching. But what they don't understand and what the book of Job teaches us is that no matter how much wisdom we as humans acquire, our wisdom doesn't go all the way back to the beginning of the world. Our wisdom doesn't go all the way down to the very foundations of creation. Our wisdom doesn't go up to the heights or to the breadth of God's wisdom. And that's the lesson of Job 38 through 42. 
God's wisdom. Only God knows. And we are to trust God. What the book of Job ultimately promises us is life beyond suffering. It doesn't tell us always why we're suffering. Remember, Job never finds out why he's suffering. But he's taught to promise God, uh, he's taught to love God and trust God, and God's promises will be fulfilled to him. And in chapter 42 of Job, God's life, uh, Job's life is restored to him. That's a foretaste of the resurrection of Jesus. The ultimate example of suffering and brokenness in this world is death. Just as we heard in the children's sermon. And the one answer to death is life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Job we're taught the limits of our wisdom and the breadth and the height and the depth of God's wisdom, ultimately revealed to us, embodied to us in Christ's resurrection. Next week, we'll look at the wisdom of Christ. So that's what we'll be looking at. But I wanted to give you a little bit of a preview. In Christ, we see God's answer to suffering in its most a powerful form, our death. God's answer is resurrection. God's answer is life. Life is stronger than death. Death is not the last word. Life is. And what this world needs every day, it's made particularly acute when a disaster strikes like Uh, the typhoon in the Philippines, or like the Asian tsunami of 2004, or like the triple disaster in Japan of 2011. What the world needs in those moments is what it needs every single day. And that's people of hope. People whose hope is grounded in the God of life. And that's what you and I are called to be by faith in Christ, by the work of the Holy Spirit. We want to be in control. And what we discover is that we are not. But the one who is in control is the one who gave life, who sustains life, and whose life conquers death, and into whose life we are invited by faith in Jesus Christ. When I was 21 and God reclaimed me through the book of Job, I was working in Nashville on the business side of the music industry. And what I needed in that life was not a lot of Sunday piety, What I needed was a Monday to Friday piety. I needed to know how to live life seven days a week. 
One of the things that I struggled with was that the, the tradition that I grew up in, for which I give thanks in so many ways, it's part of my history, it's part of my heritage. But what it really gave me was piety and guidance for what to do on Sunday, uh, morning and evening, prayer meeting Wednesday, visitation Thursday, youth group Friday. But working in the music industry and business day by day, it gave me very little guidance as to how I am to live this life that God has given us in that context. And what I discovered over the years as I've studied the wisdom literature is that this is a place where we find guidance for day-by-day living that honors God and God's life. The book of Proverbs begins in chapter 1, verses 2 through 6, with what we call a rainbow of wisdom. It's a whole series of Hebrew words that give us a a very beautiful, almost kaleidoscopic uh, color for wisdom. It includes uh, knowledge, which is just simply knowing things, uh, knowing when the Battle of Hastings occurred. Any takers? 1066, was it? Yeah. And, but it also includes a, a deeper learning where you can actually teach something about the Battle of Hastings, where you understand the significance of it, the, the historical forces that led to it, and the consequences of it. It includes understanding, wisdom does, understanding whether the Battle of Hastings is actually relevant and what ways it might be relevant today. It includes good judgment, that is, when the Battle of Hastings might actually be relevant to a conversation and not just a display of your knowledge and learning. Uh, Wisdom includes, moving away from that Battle of Hastings imagery, wisdom includes shrewdness. Uh, This is the same word that's used of the serpent. Now, the serpent was wiser than any other beast in Genesis chapter 3. But in wisdom... This shrewdness really means, uh, shrewdness in a negative way means being able to take advantage of someone when you're selling them a used car or something else. Uh, Being able to manipulate a, a committee or a deacon's board. But it also means not being taken advantage of when you're buying a used car It means not being manipulated in a committee meeting. It it has, you you see, it's, it's very earthy. Very much about life in the world. And all of those terms, oh, one other, takbuloth, the Hebrew word, which means knowing the ropes. It's really a sailing term. Knowing how to uh, uh, work the sails and the lines and the tiller uh, or rudder on a, on a sailboat so that you can get it to its destination even if the tide has changed, even if the winds are different, even if a sandbar has shifted. Uh, this is the gift of administration. This is the gift of management. This is the gift of chairing a meeting so that it's steered towards God's purpose. I discovered in wisdom God's guidance for life. 
In chapter 3, that, we, that Rhea read for us earlier, that we will spend the rest of our time in, we have a series of admonitions to piety or wisdom in verses 1 through 12. And then we have some arguments for wisdom. Why should I care about wisdom in verses uh, 13 through 20? And then I'll say just a little about, about verses 21 through 26 later on. I'm not going to try to go through this passage verse by verse, but rather try to give you some understanding of what it teaches us about wisdom and acquiring wisdom. The book of Proverbs teaches us very clearly that wisdom is something we have to work at. It's a little bit like uh, preparing for a long-distance race, a 10K or a marathon. You can't just wake up one morning and decide to be a runner. You have to get into a regimen. You know, before the sun run, the Vancouver Sun has a whole series of articles about how to prepare for it. If you've never done the sun run before, okay, this week, here's what you do in training. Next week, here's what you do in training. And each week, it builds towards that sun run. The acquisition of wisdom, skill in living, being able to live life as God created it to be lived, is not something we can simply decide for. It is something we have to be trained in. But it is within our reach because of God's grace. Now, you can look at me and tell that no matter how much I want to, and no matter how much training I put into being able to dunk a basketball, it's beyond my ability. I think that in my resurrected body, I'm going to be a six-foot, eight-inch power forward uh, in the NBA. But uh, that's just silliness. But the things that are beyond our reach in certain ways are, are not the way that wisdom comes to us. Wisdom comes to us as a gift of God's grace, which we learn by effort and training. It's interesting. It doesn't come to us as a result of our training. It's a gift from God. But God does not give it apart from our training. What happens as we long for and train for wisdom is that we create within ourselves the capacity to receive wisdom so that it doesn't simply become cleverness so that it doesn't simply become uh, an ability to manipulate others and get what we want. That, by the way, is the story of Ecclesiastes. The story of Ecclesiastes, that other wisdom book in the Old Testament, is the story of someone who got all kinds of shrewdness and insight and understanding, but he got it in order to get fame for himself and pleasure for himself and riches for himself. You know what he discovered? Everything was empty. It was meaningless. Just like when I was 21. Because the purpose of wisdom is not to become wealthy or famous or to have pleasures. The purpose of getting wisdom is to be wise. And being wise means living life as God intends us 
to live it, as God created it for us to live. In these verses here, we see a combination of uh, acts and disposition. There are commands, and then there's the cultivation of a certain discipline in our lives. One of the problems with our desiring to live the Christian life, with our wanting to live wisely in the midst of our world day by day, is that we seldom bring those two things together. You not only need to know what you are supposed to do, you need the ability, the disposition, the longing to do it as well. So, these verses are filled with... uh, Uh, admonitions or with commandments for us to act in certain ways. Uh, Bind my teachings around your neck. Do not forget my teachings. Write them on the tablet of your heart. These are actions we are to engage in. But to engage in those actions, we also need certain dispositions. See, this is the coming together of will and emotion. Emotion is a weak word for this, but it's it's the one that I will use because it most touches us. Uh, Disposition and will. We will to do certain things and we fail to do them. How often is that characteristic of our life? Or... We have a longing to do something, but but we seem incapable of doing it. You know, there are times when I'm listening to the radio when I can hear myself singing just as beautifully and wonderfully as Michael Buble. But it's in my head. And I can't quite get there. I, I think, well, surely this time, if I actually sing, I'll sound like that because it sure sounds right in my head. But it's not there. We have longings, desires, disposition towards something, and then we have the training and acts that are necessary for that. What the book of Proverbs teaches us, what God's wisdom calls us to, is to cultivate the desires of our hearts for wisdom and to begin to habituate ourselves in the acts of wisdom as well. Now at this point, let me give you something practical to do about this, and then I'm going to come back to the overview. Here are a couple of things, three things practical to do. One, read chapters, uh, well, let me put it this way. Over the course of a 30-day month, or a 31-day month, Read a chapter of Proverbs a day. Read it in the morning so that you can carry it with you through the day. As you're reading that chapter, keep an old business card or a 3 by 5 card or your Android or your iPhone beside you and enter one or two verses from that chapter to carry with you through that day. And when you're waiting on hold on the telephone or when you're in an elevator or when you're sitting and waiting for an appointment, pull that up or pull that out and just look at it and reflect on how it should shape your life that day, how it may have already been relevant 
to you that day. No more than one or two. A second way to begin to habituate yourself in wisdom, to train yourself in wisdom, is to set aside some time at some point, or even as you read the chapters through the month, pick out all the verses in Proverbs that have to do with money. It's one of the biggest topics in the book of Proverbs. And put them all together, and then start to see the patterns that are there in what the book of Proverbs teaches about money. Or speech. That's a good one for me. My job is basically, basically my job is reading and speaking. So it's good for me to go back to Proverbs and pull out all the things that the book says about speaking so that my speech is lined up with God's intention for our world. Wisdom, as it's portrayed for us in the book of Proverbs, and in this specific passage that we are looking at today, is about lining our lives up with God's intentions for creation. Next week we're going to see that that's just another way of describing righteousness. Right living. And we're going to see that Christ is the incarnation, the embodiment of the wisdom that God calls us to. In this chapter, there's a wonderful image that brings all of this together. In verse 18, we read, Wisdom is a tree of life for those who take hold of her. Those who hold her fast will be blessed. Wisdom is a tree of life. Do you know where else that image, where that tree of life occurs in Scripture? In the Garden of Eden, prior to the fall, and in the New Jerusalem, the new creation in the book of Revelation. This is where life and the world as God intended it to be and intends it to be is full and complete in the Garden of Eden and in the new creation. And what we're being told here is that the way to live now in light of God's gift of eternal life and the way things will be forever is to grab hold of wisdom. She is the tree of life. Wisdom is living right side up in an upside down world. We often talk about the kingdom of God turning the world upside down. But you know what it really does? It turns the world right side up. Wisdom is God's instruction for how to live right side up in an upside down world. It is life, eternal life, in the midst of an age ruled by death. It is the way people who hope in God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ live as witnesses to that hope 
and to that resurrection and to that new creation. It's how we live today. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of that life in the midst of death. And so next week, we will look at how Jesus Christ is wisdom for us. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the wisdom that can guide us every day in our lives as to our speech, as to our relationships with one another, with our neighbors, as to our use of money, so that we can live in this world and bring honor and glory to you. May your word continue to dwell in us and shape us and guide our paths in this coming week, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Proverbs teaches us that wisdom begins with the fear of God. And so it's so appropriate that we conclude by acknowledging the majesty of God. Amen.